I'm Yasi Salik, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case and the semi-animated In the Know from Mike Judge and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Traitors. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. From Academy Award winner Stephen Zalian. This is what I do for a living. Top critics agree Netflix's Ripley is masterful, sumptuous, and suspenseful. He's a liar. It's his profession. I have no idea what you're talking about. Ripley is the finest thing TV has offered in many years. The Guardian gives it five stars and raves Andrew Scott is absolutely spellbinding. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series, Ripley. I like the name. It is Thursday, September 22nd. Today, we're going to do a town hall episode, a mailbag. People sent me questions via email on our new email address, thetown at spotify.com. And people tweeted at me. People tweeted at producer Craig. Craig, we got some good questions. It was a great turnout. The email's been a huge hit so far. Yeah, and the tweets too. People were pretty active in the last day or so. So we have many, many questions. We are, are definitely not getting to them all. So we will do another one of these soon. But uh, we will turn it over to Craig to start the party going. All right. This comes from Scott. What is the biggest movie set disaster the average person has never heard about? So this is a good question. The There are many, many, many on-set disasters. Some of them <laughs> make it into the press. Some of them don't. Um, I don't want to go through the history of Hollywood movie on-set fights and stuff. The, where I will go is to my favorite fight of all time. And that is a movie you may or may not have heard of called Burlesque. Yeah. Which came out in 2010, I believe. Cher? Cher and Christina Aguilera, mm. which, you know, is a... Lethal combination. A diva collection that is probably not... Uh, it's probably leading to some onset drama in the first place. But the drama on this movie actually was not about Cher or Christina Aguilera. It was between the head of the studio that made the movie, that guy named Clint Culpepper, who was a Sony executive. And he hired his boyfriend at the time, Steve Anton, to direct the movie. He'd never directed a feature before. Uh, interestingly, he has <laughs> never directed a feature since then. He, was a he has only directed a Cher music video since then. Yes, uh, exactly. He was a, a music video director. And the stories of the fights on this set were outrageous. Just these two guys just fighting all the time over the script, over the blocking, over how much money they were spending. Um, we did a story by Kim Masters at The Hollywood Reporter in 2010 uh, at the time that got into some of these disputes, and it was outrageous. Even the stuff that we reported was outrageous. I had heard there was a lot more. At one point, Clint Culpepper was said to have poured an iced tea over Anton's head as he recoiled backwards and fell into a rack of clothes. 
<laughs> there was apparently like shoving matches. There was all these. Now they denied a lot of this, um, but I am going to trust Kim's reporting at the time. Uh, the budget went from fifty million to over sixty million. Uh, the movie itself, you know, it's kind of funny also because this was like a battle of the divas movie as well. Uh, but the fights behind the scenes on this were said to be just absolutely outrageous. I could read an entire book or watch an entire documentary on behind the scenes disaster film. Yeah, there's a fun, well, there's a podcast. I think, I think how not to make a movie or whatever that podcast is that just goes into specific disasters on movies. So there, that does exist out there, but I recommend finding this 2010 story that Kim Masters did on the making of burlesque um, quality, quality time. All right, next question here is from Naomi. They ask, now that Top Gun Maverick is a certified global box office success, what is next for the franchise? It sounds like there are rumblings of a sequel in the works, but is there a world in which this franchise makes its way into a theme park? So the answer is probably yes. I mean, Top Gun, obviously it's up to Tom Cruise, what he wants to do. I am told that there are not currently any discussions about a sequel or about a television spinoff or uh, any other exploitation of Top Gun beyond what's already out there, the the decision will come down to Tom Cruise, and he is right now focused on the Mission Impossible movies and getting those ready. So it, people who want the green light on a sequel, they're not going to get it right away. The theme park thing is interesting because there was actually a Top Gun roller coaster at a theme park in Northern California called Great America, which mm -hmm. Paramount used to own. Um, they sold that amusement park in 20 in 2006 to cedar fair and the branding of top gun came off that roller coaster and from what paramount tells me now there are no current licensing deals for theme parks for the top gun franchise that could change in the future but right now there's nothing there i i could envision a really awesome fighter jet ride somewhere that would... exactly i mean it's called flight pattern right now that's or flight deck is what they changed the name to at great america oh, okay uh, did you, you're NorCal guy. Did you ever go there? You know, I always heard of Great America. I don't think I ever went. Okay, yeah, I think I went there once in college, but uh, it was sort of like a lesser Magic Mountain, like a Six Flags type. Um, right. All right, next. This is from Zach. Why the delay on naming a new James Bond? MGM Warner Brothers distribution deal last month has paved the way for 007's continued global success. Is it disagreement between the Broccoli family and the studio on casting? What else could be in the way of this decision? Oh God, this honestly. I get so tired of James Bond rumors. It's like the most often reported and least accurate gossip in town. <laughs> I, I, I just, the, there's an event tonight actually in LA, the Will Rogers Institute is honoring Barbara Broccoli. And there was some speculation that she may make a Bond announcement tonight. I am told that is not happening. Um, so by the time you listen to this, I could either be right or wrong. So why are they dragging their feet? Because this is how they operate. The Broccoli's do not care about anyone's imperative to get a Bond movie out by a certain date. They, this is the family business. They control the franchise. MGM releases the movies. Now, MGM is owned by Amazon. So Amazon will have a say in how these movies are released. But ultimately, the creative decisions are made by the Broccoli family. They will be picking the next Bond. And from everything that I have heard, they are not even there yet. They're not even getting to the script stage of what they want this to be. Um, people think that it's going to be a younger Bond. I would tend to agree with that because they want someone who can 
you know, mature into the role and do this for five, six movies if it's successful. Remember, Daniel Craig came out of the blue. People did not even suspect it. There was all sorts of speculation about who would take over Bond when he got the job. He was the blonde Bond. There was controversy over his hiring. And he was a supporting character in a movie called Layer Cake. There was no, there was, you know, the, the Bond is not going to be these people whose names are out there. I can almost guarantee that. Which I actually kind of enjoy, and I also respect the Broccoli family sticking to their guns. Exactly. They they see these executives at these companies as temporary seats in a chair. These people will not be there for the long haul. They do not have the, the franchise's best interest in mind. They want a movie to come out as soon as possible, and Amazon wants to get it on its platform on Amazon Prime as soon as possible. These movies will be theatrical releases. They will go on the timeline the Broccoli's want, and there's nothing that Jeff Bezos or Andy Jassy or any of those guys can do. Okay, this is from Joshua. For years, I've been struggling to understand how Kathleen Kennedy has stayed the head of Lucasfilms. What are your thoughts? Oh, God, I'm, I'm about to get on my soapbox. This is a pet peeve of mine, even though Andor apparently is good, this new Star Wars series that Tony Gilroy did. So uh, that keep that in mind. But I believe that the management of the Star Wars franchise has been abysmal since Disney took over Lucasfilm and mostly on the film side. If you go back now in retrospect and look at how they handled this franchise, it's awful. I mean, the fact that they rushed to get Force Awakens into theaters first, it was supposed to come out in summer of 2015. Then they finally acknowledged that, oh, we're not going to make that, but they didn't delay it. They put it only into December of 2015. So they had to rush to finish that one. They had no idea what. The next episode would be when they made Force Awakens. That, I'm told, was a J.J. Abrams decision, basically saying, let's just make this one good and then we'll figure out the rest. Then they made, then they let Ryan Johnson do his episode and he made a bunch of changes to the franchise that they didn't know how to deal with on the third in that trilogy. J.J. Abrams basically pulled the Emperor out of his ass. They were like, we're going to, oh, the big bad guy is going to be the Emperor, even though he wasn't in the previous two movies. So the management there has been awful. They have basically put a pause on the movies. Kathy Kennedy has has hired director after director to try to figure out what these Star Wars movies are going to be. She hasn't had any plan that's worth greenlighting. The Rogue Squadron movie that Kathy that uh, Patty Jenkins was going to direct, that was just officially taken off the calendar for next December, even though everyone in Hollywood knew that that wasn't happening because they couldn't come up with a storyline that they wanted to do. And that's despite having a big announcement where Patty Jenkins got up at an investor day for Disney and talked about how great her Star Wars movie was going to be, that they didn't know what was going to be yet. It was a big PR mistake to do that. So I just think that the focus on streaming over the last, they got very lucky that, that Favreau made the Mandalorian what it was and all the other shows have sort of come in that vein and they're fine, but star Wars is no longer special. The movies are dormant and that's a big problem. I, I strongly believe they need a change at Lucasfilm. Kathleen Kennedy is a San Diego state alum, so I can't disparage her too much. Oh, good for her. Listen, and nothing, you know, she has had one of the all time great, producing careers in all of Hollywood. Her association with Spielberg means that she has produced some of the best movies of the past 30 years. She's married to Frank Marshall. Isn't and she? she's married to Frank Marshall, who is a, a legend. So I, I'm not, you know, Kathy is a, is a, and from all in, from everything I've ever interacted with Frank and Kathy, they're very nice people too. So I'm not, this is not a personal thing. I just feel like that the, the, the fact that the greatest film franchise probably 
in Hollywood history, if you ask me, is now dormant for five years after the CEO said he wanted a movie every year. So what's going on? Do you believe in IP overkill? Do you, I mean, I understand that there's like this balance between like the bottom line and trying to make money, as much money as you can, while also, you know, making sure that the the actual essence of the IP uh, stays sacred. But like, are there any executives at Lucasfilm arguing that they don't need to release as much Star Wars content as they are now because it builds suspense and, and we can actually spend more time making sure that these products are good? Sure. I mean, that's, that's the balance you have to strike is that you want it to be enough where it's in people's lives and it's meaningful to them. You don't want it to be overkill and feel that it's not special anymore. And Star Wars, in my opinion, has both problems right now. In TV, it's too much. Yes. There should not be multiple Star Wars shows a year. But on film, it's not enough. We should be looking forward to a Star Wars movie every couple of years. And now we're not. Have we ever seen a franchise that coexists successfully in movie theaters and at home on television screens, as in a TV show and well, Marvel right now, the Marvel shows say what you will about the quality of the Marvel shows. And I think they've been kind of mixed, but the fans like them, they have successfully kept the movie franchise viable and they now have an always on proposition with Marvel. Marvel is always on Marvel's a different animal than star Wars. I mean, you, there are thousands of, of existing Marvel characters in the universe. And they have 20 something movies that they can go back and delve into and bring certain characters well, from certain movies. Star into- Wars feels like they're trying to make 10 different meals with the same ingredients. Totally. And it's growing stale. Absolutely. They need to strike new ground in Star Wars and do something that is, is unique and fresh and gets a new generation excited about this it can't just be oh let's let's do a show about the 10 days between the actions of this movie and the actions right. of this movie <laughs> all right enough about that okay this is from bailey this is a bit of an insider question uh i remember reading possibly in matt's column that one of the reasons that jim Giannopoulos got the boot at paramount was because he held top gun for theaters and sherry redstone wasn't happy about it now that theatrical is back in vogue do you think backish and redstone regret pushing him out in favor of brian robbins in a larger sense do you think that the old hollywood studio chiefs are a valuable commodity again thanks to theatrical That is a good question. I know there's a lot of executive names thrown in there. Basically, the gist is the former head of Paramount Pictures was fired last year, in part because the owner of Paramount, Sherry Redstone, she wanted a more streaming-focused studio. And Jim was considered an old-school theatrical studio executive. So they brought in this guy, Brian Robbins, who has been an executive, an actor. He was on Head of the Class back in the day. And he has a more streaming-focused worldview than the previous regime. Now, in the year since that hire, the entire value proposition of movies and theaters has changed. Uh, Paramount did look at selling off Top Gun. Ultimately, the numbers weren't right, and Tom Cruise was very opposed to it, and what Tom Cruise wants, he typically gets, so that never really got to the deal phase, and Paramount is very happy about that because, obviously, Top Gun Maverick has been a runaway success in theaters. But I do think that there is now a thinking among studios that you do want theatrical. If you talk to the head of Paramount, Bob Backish, he talks about the sweet spot being... You go to theaters, you get your money there. 45 days later, it appears on Paramount+. Plus. 
That is the model that they are sticking to. And I wonder if that now has trickled down to them wondering if Brian Robbins, the guy they picked to be the streaming guy, is going to be that guy who delivers theatrical movies. He might be. We haven't seen his movies come out yet. But we do know the five movies that Jim Giannopoulos left when he was fired, you know, because you put these movies into motion, were Scream, which came out earlier this year, was a hit. The Lost City, the Sandra Bullock movie, that was a hit. Sonic the Hedgehog 2, big hit. Jackass Forever, modest hit. And then Top Gun Maverick, gigantic hit. So they got a lot out of the movies that Giannopoulos greenlit and then was fired and didn't. Now, Paramount will say that Top Gun was not a success just because of the movie. It was also a very savvy marketing campaign. They got Tom Cruise to the AFC Championship game. They did this whole world tour. And that was in part from the Brian Robbins regime. True, true, great, congratulations. But Top Gun was a pretty damn good movie, and that was the previous regime. So we'll see how this one does. What are some of the big bets in the next two to three years that Hollywood is making that could wildly succeed or epically fail? Okay, that's a good question. Let's just focus on 2023, because there are some very interesting big movies that are coming out. One is obviously The Flash. That one, mm -hmm. has, you know, the Ezra Miller situation has you know, sort of spiraled uh, into a, a big problem for Warner Brothers. We don't have to get into the details of that, but the Flash movie is supposed to be a reset of the DC universe. They're positioning it in summer as their big summer movie. So that is a huge question as to whether that can successfully reset DC with the Ezra Miller problems. I think Indiana Jones, the Harrison Ford uh, movie, the sequel that's coming out next summer, we don't know the exact title yet. That is a big question mark. It's going to be a huge hit. I mean, people are going to show up just to see Harrison Ford do this role another time. Yeah, right. The, the fourth one, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, made $800 million. Yes, exactly. But what Kingdom of the Crystal Skull failed to do was set up future Indiana Jones movies without Harrison Ford. Right. Shia LaBeouf was supposed to be that guy. He ended up not being that guy. So the question isn't whether Indiana Jones will do well. We know it will. The question is whether it sets up future movies that can be, the mantle can be taken by someone else or whether there's a scenario set up by the, the movie that can lead to a an ongoing franchise. Because God Harris forbid we let successful IP just die. No, it can never die. And this is a big franchise. You know, listen, they did a, a TV show in the 90s with River Phoenix. Um, they have done other things in this world, but they want this movie to set up future movies. And Harrison Ford, God love him, is 80 years old. He is not going to be doing any more after this. Yeah. Uh, the other one is Renfield, which is the universal monster movie that is coming out uh, next summer with Nick Cage, Nicholas Holt, a couple others. Universal has tried forever to make a thing out of their monster franchises. This is a studio that was built on movies like Dracula, Mummy, you know, Frankenstein. And those haven't really translated for modern audiences. Obviously, the first Mummy with Brendan Fraser did very well and was a franchise. The reboot they tried with Tom Cruise was a very famous disaster. They are now trying again with Renfield. And that's a big question as to whether audiences are going to show up for a traditional monster movie. The other ones I would say for next year, Wonka is a big question. The Timothy Chalamet reboot of the Willy Wonka franchise. I am skeptical based on the footage that I saw at the CinemaCon conference. I just don't think it's going to happen. The other one is The Exorcist. Are audiences mm. going to be interested in a 50-year-old 
horror franchise. I think so. You think so? Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think they will. Um, it'll be a similar thing to how they rebooted Halloween a few years ago. Having the original star and Jamie Lee Curtis was a big deal for that one. And they do have Ellen Burstyn coming back for this one. I don't one. think that matters at all. You don't. I, no. I think for a certain audience, at least having a connection to the original uh, is a big deal. Maybe for the older audience, but for young people, I think just the title, The Exorcist, is enough to get their ass in a seat. Yeah, and the religious aspect, I think, will bring a crowd as well. A lot of these religious-oriented horror movies do um, do do well. But uh, I do think, you know, Halloween benefited from Jamie Lee Curtis, I think, with older audiences. And I think that it, less so, but having Ellen Burstyn at least as a connection to the original will be a plus. Uh, why wasn't FX's Dave nominated for anything? Many shows far less enjoyable are getting the prestige TV love. I thought season two was fantastic. That was from Peter Schrager. So our buddy Schrager is right. I love Dave as well. Uh, it was great. I, thought, I, 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 you know what? I, it's very difficult to account for why certain things catch on with voters and certain things don't. Well, is this more of a question about the politics behind television and movie marketing campaigns and awards pushes? Yeah, but F, but FX is is a brand that voters endorse. Like FX has had a lot of success. Right, Atlanta is on FX. Comedies yeah. like Atlanta and. You know, I just think that Dave is in a younger skewing show. People that are under 40 find it hilarious. And people that are over 40 maybe find it less hilarious because it's not their world. Now, obviously, Atlanta was able to cross over, and that's about young people. And Euphoria, obviously, is an Emmy show, and that is about, you know, high school kids. For whatever reason, uh, Lil Dicky has not been the kind of figure that has uh, that has been able to charm the awards voters. We should have an award that only people under thirty five can vote for. I'd that that would be amazing. See. That would be amazing. I bet we I bet we would get shows like Dave nominated for, if we did that. Uh, okay, is there or will there be a breaking point with award show ratings when the networks cut the Oscars and maybe the Globes loose? When does this all come to a head? That is a fascinating question, especially when we saw that the Emmys this year on NBC failed to get to 6 million viewers, which is an all-time low. Um, the Oscars are facing an existential moment. They had a meeting this past weekend where they have vowed to fix the Oscar ratings and to bring the show back to its prominent position. You know, it's a really tough slog because these platforms, the broadcast networks, are just becoming less and less popular. People just don't go there. TV is becoming a an appointment viewing type experience rather than turn it on and see what's on. So that's what they're up against. And I do think that there will be a point when it is not economically viable to pay a lot of money to run these award shows. It's not right now, but it is in the future because they are more expensive. Now, the thing they have going for them is even in a depressed ratings environment, award shows deliver a better audience than typical for broadcast TV. It's a little more upscale. It's amazingly, um, it's a little bit younger than some of these shows on like CBS or the procedurals. And there is value in having a urgent type show that people feel like they should watch live. It's not quite sports, but it is better than what is typically on broadcast. So I do think that the the award shows are in a slightly better place than your average broadcast show, but not much. And eventually, like the Globes are a perfect example. The Globes were just renewed for a year on NBC after all their controversies. After that, they got to take it out to the market and see who's going to be interested in the Golden Globes. 
Okay, next question here. I know both are highly integral, but what do the streaming services value more these days? Customer acquisition or churn slash retention rates and why? So that's a good one. I actually asked my puck colleague, Julie Alexander, about this because it's the question. Do you value more bringing in customers or do you value more keeping the customers you have? And she told me that it depends on the company uh, and it depends on the region you're in. For instance, Netflix in the United States is pretty well penetrated. There's like 70 million or so people who subscribe to Netflix. It's not growing that much. So for Netflix in the US, it's all about retention keeping those customers in the ecosystem. But for instance, let's look at HBO Max in a market like Spain or all over Europe. Right now, they are launching in those territories. So it's all about acquiring customers, getting people into the universe. Um, and then when you add in advertising, which all of these companies are adding to these services, it's about usage and the time spent on the service. It's not just the value of having it. You got to actually get the eyeballs on the shows to justify advertising. So there's a lot of different goals and challenges for these services, depending on where they are in their life cycle. Next question. How seriously should we take discussion of Top Gun Maverick as a potential best picture nominee? Is there real support among Academy voters or is it just happy talk? Uh, the answer to that is yes, they are going to do a campaign. Um, I personally, I just had lunch with a, an older Academy voter who I consider a harbinger on like what the Academy and that older demo likes. This person said she absolutely loved Top Gun Maverick and would be voting for it. So that is real. We'll see if it can last all season. You know, there's another big budget blockbuster movie that got nominated for its previous version, Avatar, and that could take that Top Gun slot. Um, Black Panther 2, Black Panther, if you remember, the original got a Best Picture nomination. So if the second one is good, maybe that gets in there too. It could be a very populist Oscars if these movies turn out to be good and Top Gun makes it in as well. Nomination for Cruise? Interesting. I would not put it past him. I would not. Uh, the goodwill around him, I think, is pretty strong. It's sort of his signature role. And... If he does a campaign and he does, you know, goes out to the events and starts glad handing people, maybe he does get a nomination. I mean, he has been nominated for a movie in 22 years, for an Oscar in 22 years. So it'd be fun to have him there. This would be, this would be a great victory lap for him. There are a lot of doubters on that movie. Uh, okay, last question here. Where will Apple TV be five years from now? Netflix first entered the original content game with the prestige shows like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, but later abandoned that for a lot of cheaper, less prestige content. Is there any chance Apple TV Plus goes the same way? I think the answer is no, just because, because they have money. Yeah, they're different businesses. Netflix is, it, that's all they do is video. Apple TV Plus is part of a larger company, Apple, that is largely in the business of selling consumer products and hardware to people. So there's no reason for Apple to have to do that stuff unless they, for some reason, come upon hard times and start relying more on their video <laughs> product to save their iPhone business, which I don't think is going to happen. If that, if that happens, Apple has much bigger problems on its plate. Apple wants to be HBO. They want to be smaller, bespoke, have quality programs and movies and appeal to an elevated audience. I don't think they're going to start greenlighting, you know, Love is Blind and, uh, you know, selling the OC. You don't think they're going to make a bid on Vanderpump Rules or anything like that? Don't think so. I think they they want to have that elevated audience. doesn't mean they won't do reality, but they'll do it in a way that feels a little bit more like an HBO style show. All right. Well, that does it. This is our third town hall. We got, we covered a lot. Did, did you learn anything? 
Of course. Every time I log on with you, I learn something. Uh, unfortunately, we did not discuss the 2006 comedy Accepted, which somehow has become your uh, your hill to die on. Just the movie has fallen by the wayside in in culture, and I don't know why. It's a great comedy. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck, and I want to thank you for listening. We will see you next week. 